The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films as deadly weapons. We're your hosts. I am Jay. And I am Mike. This week, Mike's boldly going where no one has gone before. Or, more precisely, where no one should have ever gone before. Yeah, I tasked him with Star Trek V The Final Frontier, a movie that's so well known for nearly sinking a successful franchise and is the only major directing credit from star William Shatner. After we hear Mike's views on that, we'll discuss our bottom five gods and wrestle up some staff picks before Mike reveals what he's got in store for me to watch for our next episode. But before that, let's hear a bit from the trailer for Star Trek V. Fascinating. How often have you done this? Actually, it's my first attempt. Fire the rockets! never cease to amaze me, nor I myself. This is the boldest trek of all. Warp speed now. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Mr. Scott, you're amazing. There's nothing amazing about it. I know this ship like the back of my hand. Mike, you're not a Trekkie, a Trekker or anything else even remotely resembling a Star Trek fan, correct? That's fair. Yep. <laughs> you don't even know the difference between a Trekkie and a Trekker, do you? Is there one? <laughs> I really didn't. No, I, there is. I, I, there I, is. Did, I didn't. No. <laughs> and yet you are about to embark on a discussion on a movie that bets very, very heavily on not just familiarity of the characters from the original Star Trek, but bets on fondness for those characters. And for someone like me, who could be considered both a Trekkie and a Trekker, meaning that I'm a fan of TOS and TNG, the original series and The Next Generation, okay. Star Trek V should have seemed like a slam dunk. We get the continuation of an ensemble that has been, at that point, adventuring together for over 20 years. But the film also boasts as high concept a premise as this franchise could possibly offer. What happens when the crew who boldly goes where no one has gone before encounters the ultimate discovery any sentient race could ever make? God. This should have been a slam dunk in 89, which was just a couple years after the box office smash of Star Trek IV, the funny one with the whales, as it's known to both Trekkies and Nod fans. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. Are you making that up? This is going to be a thing. You could say anything. And I, what do you I mean could. the whales? You wouldn't even know. The one the with whales. the whales? The one with the whales. Is this you seriously don't know what I'm talking is about. Is this whole episode a put Oh, my God. <laughs> like, am I, well, you saw. Am, are you playing me for a fool here? I feel like I'm just nodding like, uh-huh, the whale one. Okay. <laughs> the whale one, yeah. <laughs> then there was the one with the gremlins. No, no those were tribbles. Sorry. How would I know? No. <laughs> How would you know? Well, this was, this was in 89, and this was at the height of Star Trek Fuhrer. If you think about it, it's two years after Star Trek IV, which was a really big hit. It's about two years into the run of The Next Generation, which is really when that show started to hit its stride. But instead, this film, Star Trek V, proved to be a financial, critical, 
and audience disappointment, garnering five Golden Raspberry Award nominations that resulted in two wins for first-time director William Shatner, one for director and one for actor. So with all that said, Mike, did Star Trek V make you see God, or was it, like it was for everyone else, a cinematic two-pump chump? Before I get into that, I would like to start this episode with a word from our sponsor. This week's episode of Film Jitsu is brought to you by FederationRocketBoots.com. Federation Rocket Boots, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Please enter coupon code JITSU at checkout for 15% off your next purchase at FederationRocketBoots.com. Jason, <laughs> there's so much to say here. First off, I think I want to establish, and in answering your question, I'm going to do my best not to be precious here or obtuse purposefully. It is important to know that... I don't know an awful lot about this franchise. And I do know a couple of things. Some of those, I think, Zeitgeist, you know, I know what the Vulcan grip thing is. Hmm. When that happened to a horse, I, I could see it for what it was. <laughs> I know who Kirk is, you know, that kind of thing. I, I know some of the big stuff. But when you tell me there's a movie with whales, I have no way to know whether or not that's true. Uh, this might have been maybe your cruelest ever. <laughs> selection for film jitsu because what you managed to do was turn me off on a franchise that I think for 20 years you have wanted me to find my way into. And uh -huh. so what happened here was that this is Star Trek V. I'm not even supposed to be here today where Kirk gets <laughs> called into work on his day off. And it was... I'm a little speechless, honestly, at what this movie is, because I sat there the whole time thinking I knew what Star Trek might be. Mm -hmm. And then I got this movie. <laughs> right. And I thought, have I been wrong about all of this all along? <laughs> because I, I thought I wasn't interested in it for some particular reasons. And then I saw this movie and found out that maybe I'm not interested in it for an entirely different set of reasons. Sure. I guess I have to ask, going into a movie, here I am. Okay. I've heard... So much about Star Trek, a yeah. movie where we trek the stars. <laughs> and then, then I spend 20 minutes at the beginning of this movie, like, here we go. Yeah. I'm going to watch Star Trek. Why am I watching some shitty Western where old dudes go right. camping? <laughs> and sing, row, row, row your boat. What what the hell was going on at the beginning of this film, I think, is the question that everyone asks. Uh, the guy, and I can explain it. Okay. I, I'm, I can I explain why. Because what I want to say, and I think hopefully this is, you'll affirm this for me. <laughs> this whole movie felt to me like one of those Netflix reboots. <laughs> but I never watched the original show. Like, I, I felt like I was watching, like, Punky Brewster, the new cast. Am I wrong in that? It was, was this whole movie kind of a nostalgia trip that I don't have a frame of reference for? A little. A little bit. But I think that what's interesting is it'd be more like Fuller House because it was the same cast. Right? Yeah. Yes. But, it, but I think what happened was they, they finished an arc in the film series. It began in Star Trek II. And... It was a very compelling story in Star Trek II with a very satisfying but very upsetting ending. Okay. And then it goes into Star Trek III, a direct continuation of Star Trek II. And then from Star Trek III, 
flowed directly into the one with the whales, Star Trek Four. Which, yes, there are really whales in it. Which one has and... Khan? Because I know the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> That's two. Khan That's is, two. He's the big baddie yeah. in these things, right? He's the arch nemesis well, he, of, of just in that Kirk? one movie. Oh. Just in that one movie. All right. And then there's an and then uh, Christopher Lloyd hilariously plays a Klingon in the third movie, right. which is wonderfully campy. Mm. And then in in the fourth one, they actually travel back in time to save some humpback whales to bring back to the future so they can talk to a probe that is destroying earth so what's funny about wow. that what's funny about the third and fourth one were that they were both directed by leonard nimoy himself spock okay and they had a lot of great comedic sort of tongue-in-cheek touches to them in the writing in the portrayal of the characters and everything else so what happened with star trek 5 is they ran out of story they had finished the arc hmm. and they were sort of almost like rebooting, right? In many respects, re-rocket booting. Rocket booting, huh? <laughs> right, right, that, exactly. You have to tell me, is that kind of dumb technology no, a that part never of this was in, franchise? No, Because no, here I no, am, I'm like, what do I, what do I know about James T. Kirk, right? A guy who's a namesake for your child. He's supposed to be <laughs> so cool that he's a guy that... You love enough as a character that you named your son Yeah, but he wasn't the one him. on the rocket boots. No, he's he, not the one that was on the rocket boots. He was free climbing like right. he was Tom Cruise but, in a Mission well, Impossible movie. Like, so here I am like, okay, James T. Kirk is like this suave, cool motherfucker laying pipe throughout the universe, always in the right, always the coolest guy in the room. And now here I am. He's like, he's wearing Jordache mom jeans and a flannel yeah. shirt in the first <laughs> 10 minutes of this movie. I That's was like, rough. Has everybody been lying to me about this franchise for my whole life? No, I feel no, like not this, at all. I feel like maybe Star Trek has been a big practical joke that that everybody's <laughs> been playing on me. <laughs> I think that the love really comes from the time spent with the characters. And I think that this movie trades really heavily on that, as I said in my setup. And it fails miserably. Mm. It fails in the humor aspect because it thinks we want to see this with these characters. Okay. But in fact, we really don't want to see it. We don't want to see a 20 minutes of them in a national park somewhere climbing so... rocks and singing row 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 your boat row 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 your boat gently down the stream row, merrily merrily row, merrily row merrily gently down the stream merrily 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 light come on spark why didn't you jump in i was trying to comprehend the meaning of the words it's a song, you green-blooded Vulcan. You sing it. It feels forced. It feels awkward. Yeah. When they finally do get to the ship, the ship is ramshackle and everything's falling apart. It's very comical, but it's not funny. The whole thing felt like a dad joke sitcom to me. Like, yeah, I was waiting for Kirk to ask somebody if they were working hard or hardly working. It was, oh, it was, 100%. It was that kind of thing. And yeah. you're right. We get to this, the Enterprise, which yeah. I know is the ship and it's supposed to be like the coolest ship in the galaxy. And then I get there mm. and the whole thing is like <laughs> falling apart. The point of the show, right, was never that there was really too much difficulty with the ship. If the ship took on damage, yep. right, and a battle or something, then Scotty would work some sort of magic or whatever, and then yeah. he would be able to make it fly. Or they'd fly back into time, but then they'd have to do some other crazy thing to come, you know, so. <laughs> That's always been my perception of the show. You know, I joked before, right. but I was serious that my only frame of reference for Star Trek was that I watched the last 10 minutes of a lot of The Next Generation because I was waiting for Knight Rider to come on. Right, right. And so my entire perception of this show is that basically something isn't working. And if we just sort mm -hmm. of 
misuse this technology or repurpose <laughs> the thingamajig, then we can either get the shields up, shoot the thing, or fly away fast. And, yeah, sure. And it's always some creative, like, if we reroute the power thing to the fudge, then off we go. And yeah. that's yeah, right, exactly. the end of every one of those shows that I ever saw. And I was kind of like, I, sure. okay, but here I am, this introduction to your beloved franchise, <laughs> and the ship is a piece of shit. The whole thing is like some kind of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids gag reel. We're like, nothing's <laughs> working right. And <laughs> I guess in some ways... I really did feel like I was like, man, I'm never going to get into Star Trek after this. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what I was doing was you a favor. I was doing you a favor by saying like, dude, don't waste your time. There's better but, things out there. But that's, <laughs> I think you're missing my point is that I hear from people who I respect and enjoy. I mean, you're a guy who I've watched so much stuff. And for years, you've been telling me how wonderful Star Trek is. And rather to than me. one day sitting me down in the basement and like giving me the best of Star Trek and hopefully maybe I jump on board. 20 years later, my first introduction is Star, <laughs> Star Trek, Trek goes time. to camp. <laughs> and I don't know. Kirk invades what I, I can only believe is space Vegas on, on, on a bunch of what I think are unicorns. Jason, does this movie have unicorns? Because they were they certainly look like horses it. that had horns. Those are unicorns. I know what unicorns are. Those are unicorns. They were very dirty. They were very dirty unicorns. Yeah, they were like, like camel if, corns. It was like if Jawas had unicorns. <laughs> right, I don't exactly. Know. We finally get some action 40 minutes into the movie. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. We got what I, I think I could identify as the jokey boy. I bet this is really something the fans of the series they are getting a real yuck out of singing Row, nope. Row, Row Your Boat. I don't know. <laughs> but okay, now I'm going to get Star Trek. And Spock does that Vulcan pinch thing to a fucking horse. <laughs> like I'm watching Blazing Saddles, you know? And I was like, all right, okay, we're, we're doing this. And there's then there's the rocket boot piggyback which is the goofiest oh. fucking thing i've ever seen when they both stand on the boot and then Three, they all go up yeah like andre the giant pulling people up the cliffs you know with like uh. everybody grab on i have some questions about this okay i know the klingons are the bad guys right yeah do they all look like jimmy superfly snooka or is it just this one guy <laughs> Just this one guy. Because there's that one you're guy. You're so right. So he's the bad guy. He's that's got like, the eyes. Yeah, he's flying around and he's got. I was like, that's Jimmy Snuka. I know the Superfly when I see him. And again, like this isn't me trying to be cute. I honestly don't know if this guy is what all the Klingons look like. Well, they all do have the bunga hair with the dead crab sort of on okay. their forehead. Yeah, but okay, yeah. Worf. <laughs> Worf is a Klingon, yeah. right? But he's one yeah. Of, Worf is a Klingon. He's one of the good ones. <laughs> is this? Well, that's that's further in the future. Oh, next okay. generation. All right. So it. This movie had no real story. It had no real parable. It had no real... It wasn't saying anything. It really didn't. <laughs> they go to Shockery, which is supposed to be heaven, right? And so I'm like, okay, now we're going to go to heaven. This is going to be fucking tough. It's this, a dust bowl. <laughs> there's Rocks. just a little bit of turbulence. It's like, ba bum 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 Oh, that was a bad time. Look, heaven. And I was like, okay. The Great Barrier was not difficult to cross. So now we're halfway into the movie and it decides to turn into a movie. Okay, great. So now we get some action going. We've met the bad guy who is Spock's half-brother. The film decided to do nothing with that little bit of drama, aside from like, <laughs> oh, come on, man, but I'm your brother. And then just when I think we're about to get a movie going, we're back in the row, row, row your boat fucking campground just as fast as we got there. <laughs> I'm like... 
the great the great barrier is easier to get through than driving to Logan Airport. <laughs> okay, now we're gonna have a face off with God. This is my yeah. understanding. We've gone to Shockery, which is yeah. is Shockery a thing in Star Trek before this movie? No, it wasn't. It was named. Do you know why it got that name? I don't. I'm not sure if you know, but the the role of Cybok, who plays that that's Spock's brother in the yes. movie, the guy that's sort of saying we've got to find God the whole time, and he's he's not the guy who's not Sean Connery, the guy that's not Sean Connery that clearly should be Sean Connery. Yep. yep. Shockery. Mm-hmm. Sean Connery. Shockery. Oh, really? They literally named it as an homage to Connery because he was originally no contracted way. to be part of the film. Yeah. I legitimately had no idea that that was the thing. Yeah. I just watched this movie and I was like, man, this movie really wants that guy to be Sean Connery. And that's yeah. kind of representative of everything I felt about this movie. Like this version of Cybok is the like diet Mr. Pibb version of Sean Connery. And that's what yeah. I thought the movie was. I thought that the effects in this movie were unforgivably bad. They're this, terrible. I have seen the last 10 minutes of all of those Next Generation shows. Yeah. So I know what the Enterprise looks like flying through space. Granted, this was 1989, but Santo, The Abyss, the Abyss was came out in 1989, <laughs> right? One of the reasons that this movie has such piss poor effects is because Industrial Light and Magic was so busy doing other work that they couldn't do Star Trek like they had prior. So they went with this guy named Bran Farron. Industrial Light and Magic actually gave him the original models to work with, but Paramount was so cheap. Paramount was really who's to blame here. Yeah. They were like, okay, it's a, it's a franchise that makes some money. It's not a huge franchise. We're not going to put that much money into the film. They didn't. They shortchanged the movie ridiculously. And I feel bad for Shatner because he ends up with this on his as his like one big time credit yeah. as a director. And honestly, the studio and the producers really screwed him. <laughs> like They really screwed him on this one. What you're telling me amazingly is not hollywood lore that's all on the screen me as an absolute newcomer to all of this right i could see that when i was watching i was like i don't know anything about star trek but i know that this movie is getting short changed yeah it got short changed in clearly in its effects budget in the talent that it had to bring it all to life yeah the story the story screenplay got ripped apart all apart okay so now we're gonna have a face-off with god Right. And what we get instead is like Cybok does this quit hitting yourself thing. (laughs) (laughs) I actually had to go and look it up to figure out what happened because it was so unclear in the film itself what happened. So it's it's not God. I guess it's a demon that thought it was. It's an entity. Just an entity, not even a demon. Just a just an otherworldly entity that was like trying to pretend God. it was God. Yeah. But it does have one of the greatest lines in all of Star Trek. Okay. Where Kirk steps up and says, Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, What does God need with a starship? Yeah, <laughs> that yes. moment yep. was so good. The absurdity of the yeah. whole concept yeah. and how it all pivots on that yep. one line. Yep. There are quintessential moments that are very Star Trek okay. in this movie. Okay. And that was definitely one of them. The interplay between Bones and Spock 
whenever they kind of have their little disagreements uh-huh. and stuff, those were played pretty real and pretty, pretty accurately with the rest of the series. It was really obvious to me all of those times. It really did feel right. like one of those Netflix reboots. I could tell there yeah. were moments where I was like, oh, I don't get that. But I could tell it was for the fans. There was a lot of that yeah, kind I don't, of stuff. Yeah, that- yeah. I've never been somebody that has had a bad word to say about Star Trek. I love fandom. I love people that are enthusiastic and excited about things. I want people to like what they like, enjoy what they want to enjoy. I think it's awesome that people love Star Trek the way that they do. My impression of it has always been that it's a kind of sci-fi that just doesn't really appeal to me. And so when I saw this, it was almost the opposite of the reasons I thought I wasn't going to be interested. After having watched this movie, if I kind of do the math, (laughs) I'm going to go out a few decimal points on what I'm seeing here. I think I see what Star Trek is about and why it's so appealing. I can see if I take those relationships and I get them out of the rocket boots and the silly sing-along, I can see where these relationships in adventures throughout space are interesting. I can see the brotherhood, the kinship, especially these guys are a little bit older. Yeah. I remember kind of our good looking running around the universe days. And now, I don't know if you and I were hanging out, we might just sit around and sing campfire songs instead (laughs) of painting the town red. I can tell that these are guys who used to paint the universe red and now they're just sort of, they want to hang out in their dad jeans and ride around in their rocket boots and (laughs) make a road trip to go see God and tell him to get fucked. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what's really funny about this movie, again, is that it doesn't have anything to say, which is very unlike Star Trek. Star Trek really prides itself on having a central premise or, a cent- or, or maybe several different central themes that are running through each picture. Maybe they're commenting on the current political situation of the world, or they're, or they're just commenting on getting older. The, a lot of like the Star Trek 2, 3, and 4, a lot of that is about letting go of who you were, and just like what you were talking about, really, and becoming who you are. And there's a lot of like meditation there and a lot of like, a lot to do with paying for your past sins. I love your analogy of saying that it's like a reboot because in many respects it really was. And I like, I think we should just call it the re-rocket boot. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Because that really is, that really is what it, what it was. They were like the the snow boots that I had in the eighties when I was a kid, only steam shot out the bottom and you got to kind of (laughs) hover around. I, I think the whole thing seemed to me to be Shatner wanting to have his character literally roll up to God and be more righteous than God. Right. I could tell. And I, but it I, wasn't I could see, God. I could see it at the <laughs> end. Right. And I could see at the end, at the very end of the movie, Kirk admits to being wrong. And I could tell that that was mm-hmm. supposed to be a big deal. Because I think right. what this whole movie wanted to show me was a guy who has always been right about everything, knows he's been right about everything, even went to go face to face to God and still called bullshit. (laughs) It was like, that's not God. I'm God. And then they blow out of town. Maybe you have ensured that I will never boldly go where no man has gone before. This might be the death knell for any possible Trek fandom that might happen. Or perhaps the opposite. If I give it a chance... If I sit down with the Wrath of Khan, which is supposed to be the good one, maybe not mm-hmm. the whales, I guess, but I now have a <laughs> I have a basis of comparison for how bad this can be. Right. And so maybe I don't need years of watching the show to enjoy the good movie. I just needed this. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> Maybe. I don't know what your <laughs> motives were here, Santo. If you were trying to push me away or draw me in closer, I don't know what I think I, I was just, I was really just trying to make you suffer, Mike. That's it. That's, it's a bad movie. Okay. That's what we watch. Okay. So that's really it. There was no larger reason. <laughs> you don't know anything about Star Trek. You were going to be confused, probably upset, and irritated. And I was like, this is going to do just fine. <laughs> Well, whenever I think of Star Trek movies, I think about them by a single identifier, you know, kind of like the title for Friends episodes. For instance, one was the one with the bald chick, two was the one where Spock dies, three was the one where the Enterprise blows up, etc. Well, f five is known to me as the one with fake God. So, so it made sense to me for our bottom five for this episode to be the one with the bad gods. <laughs> so bottom five gods... Really hard list to come up with. Really difficult. How did you come up with your list? Man, I was I when you said bottom five gods, I was like, oh, this is gonna be a walk in the park. And then as no. I started doing it, this was a it's lot hard. harder than I thought. Yeah. And part of that was because I self-imposed the rule where I tried to stay out of the Greek pantheon. I didn't why? Want, well, I'm very I, curious why. <laughs> Was it too easy? <laughs> I guess maybe it was too easy. It was too obvious. I also didn't have the flip side of the coin. Like, I didn't have a really good example of like, oh, man, this is a movie that gets Greek mythology really right. Oh, <laughs> And gotcha. so there are so many They're examples all pretty of rough. it being pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you a bad superhero movie because I can tell you some good superhero movies. Right. So I decided to try and leave it out. It, it made things harder for me, but I did ultimately manage to do that, I think. So I guess I'll just kick us right off here at the top. Yeah. My number five is from a 1995 movie, possibly even worthy of being in the number one spot here. Wow. Because it, this was the one that was the first one that jumped out at me. It was the only one that jumped out immediately. Hmm. That's Christopher Lambert as Lord Raiden in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> <laughs> Who decided that Christopher Lambert is going to play the Asian god of lightning? What are we doing it's here, so movie? Good. This is a movie that I saw in the theater in oh, 1995 no. i was away at camp and the moms put the kids in the car drove us three towns over to go to the movies to see mortal kombat i was so <laughs> pumped and even in 1995 i was like what the <laughs> fuck is happening here <laughs> he he talks like this he, yeah what is that like <laughs> Is that doing? him doing an Asian accent? Like, what is it? <laughs> Christopher Lambert sounds like Peter Lorre. <laughs> like, as really, yes, that's very yes. good. The lightning. I I'm see like, you. What are we? What? Who? Finish him. Fi fi finish him. Ha, ha, ha. He does a lot of giggling in the movie, which I don't yes. know. I guess when <laughs> I think of the god of thunder and lightning, and I don't think of a lot of <laughs> fate of billions will depend upon you. <laughs> Sorry. 
talk about whitewashing Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, this was the one for me. I, I put it at number five, even though I think it could be number one, mostly because I think the actual gods that I have in the rest of my picks are probably worse at being <laughs> gods. But sure. Lord Raiden, Christopher Lambert. Ouch. <laughs> I, t- I think I took a, a kind of similar approach. I I tried to choose gods from many different religions if there were. I didn't want to just harp on one. So I didn't want to just, I didn't want to keep myself to the pantheon, the literal pantheon of gods. And so I started off with a a very probably controversial choice. And, you know, a lot of people really love this movie. I didn't. (laughs) And it was largely because of this character, which is funny because he's portrayed by an actor I really usually very much enjoy. And the character is Maui from the movie Moana and is voiced by The Rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Uh, To be fair, the Polynesian demigod Maui, upon which The Rock's version is based, is an incredibly powerful entity that, among many crazy feats, catches the sun with a fish hook, thus lengthening days. He's also fabled to have brought fire to mankind, harnessed winds so we can sail in the ocean, and pulled many a Pacific island from the sea. Right. So why is he portrayed in this movie as a blowhard braggart with a fragile ego and a bad temper? (laughs) I mean, I get that humankind kind of forgot about him for a thousand years or so, and he's got a chip on his shoulder about it, but giving a shipwrecked kid... That's from a struggling island who just lost her grandma and is alone and on a dangerous quest to find the heart of the ocean is just, it's mean and it's childish. <laughs> and and that's what Maui is for a lot of the movie. He's yeah, like a bratty he's just kind child. of an asshole. Yeah, he's, he's tempestuous, he's self-serving, he's arrogant, and he's pretty exhausting for me. I know he's powerful and he's cool, and I have to admit that I loved hearing the rock belt out, you're welcome. But- <laughs> fun fun fact, just today, I sang that exact song with a ukulele to a group full of senior Aww. citizens. Yeah. Listen Aww. up, kid. I can go on and on. I can explain every natural Aww. phenomenon. The tide, the grass, the ground. That was just Maui messing around. I killed an eel. I buried his guts. Spread a tree. Now you got coconuts. I do it all for the old folks, Santo. I'm That's ready awesome. with it. Yeah. Good. Maybe you should have voiced it. Maybe I would have connected <laughs> more. Was great he's so charming in it he is good yeah he's very good it's a great flick it's not a great flick for me i'm sorry really it isn't yeah it really isn't it doesn't resonate with me not the way that many of the other disney pixar flicks do all of it didn't sit well with me when i watched the movie maybe it was just a mood i don't know what it was but I didn't, this movie I never really connected with. Maui I really didn't connect with. And so that's why he makes it to number five on my list of lousy gods. <laughs> my girls really went for the movie. Moana is the main character. And I think my sure. girls identified Sure, and he's the sidekick. Her. But you're yeah. right. He's just the asshole the whole time unnecessarily <laughs> to a lost and scared child. You're right. It's a good pick. It's a good pick. My number four. Uh, is from a 1988 film directed by hmm. Ken Russell, based on a Bram Stoker novel. Oh. I'm going with the giant snake god in the lair yeah. of the white worm. This yeah. movie is deeply weird. Yeah. There's, it's very unsettling. It's a very strange comedic tone with a mm-hmm. lot of dick biting, if I remember. Like, a lot of dicks <laughs> get bit in this movie. 
And it's about a lair, a hole in the ground with a giant white worm god in it. <laughs> and there are and some vaguely, crazy none people. at all penis like. <laughs> no, it's and there are some crazy people who think it would be cool if this thing were hanging out here. <laughs> and that is not cool. I guess the first sign that maybe a religion is not for me is if its adherents are dick biting a lot. Like, no, I'm probably not gonna worship your white worm if biting somebody in the dick is part of the deal so it's just it is deeply weird in fact honestly i kind of even regret putting it on my list because i think it would have made a great film jitsu episode oh let's do it anyway yeah, it doesn't maybe, matter we don't maybe you, maybe come definitely. halloween time <laughs> yep well 1988 the layer of the white Rape worm choice. That, that snake god is mm -mm, nope no thank you well i'm right around the same time with my number four it's somebody that you know very well. Is Vigo. Vigo. I almost Vigo the put Carpathian. Vigo on my list. <laughs> well, in considering this list, I almost put down Gozer from Ghostbusters uh -huh. and Ghostbusters Afterlife because, let's be real, while the movies are really good, Gozer as a god is pretty weak sauce. Yep. I mean, like, choose the form of your destroyer. It pretty much just sets you up for defeat. It's just, it's obvious to me that nothing ever good was going to come from, like, a 100-foot marshmallow man. You're going to get defeated. <laughs> but even weaker and dumber was the god quote-unquote god in Ghostbusters 2, Vigo the Carpathian. And I think that some might come at me with, well, he's not a real god. But I'll, I'll have to remind you that his chief emissary and baby napper, Janos Poha, <laughs> played wonderfully by Peter McNichol, is I quoted... covered in goo? <laughs> no, why am I covered with goo? But he's, he's so good in this movie, he's he really great, is. Yeah. But at one point, he's quoted telling Sigourney Weaver's Dana that... There are many perks to being the mother of a living god. <laughs> so, you know, after it's revealed that the spirit of Vigo is going to be uh, going into her baby Oscar uh, to be the vessel of his rebirth or whatever. Also, I think it's it's very important to remember that Vigo wasn't just a man because he was poisoned, stabbed, shot, hung, stretched, disemboweled, drawn, and quartered. <laughs> so that's some damage. But... Was he, you know, like a good god, like a cool god, and no, with no, yeah, <laughs> with no disrespect to Wilhelm von Homburg, who played Vigo on screen, or the magnificent Max von Sydow, who lent his voice to Vigo, is dubbed over because mm. the actor uh, Wilhelm von Homburg could not speak. <laughs> right, <laughs> he was, he was all, it was terrible. He was a super lame god, Vigo, and he was silly looking. He had Fabio hair. He had a never-ending five head, you know. I'm so. about to admit something embarrassing. Oh, here we go. Oh, God. What is it? Ghostbusters 2 came out in 1989. Yeah. I was eight years old in 1989. Sure. Vigo kind of scared me. Yeah. <laughs> I think Vigo I, freaked it, out a lot of kids. It was Max von Sydow's voice. It was the voice. It yeah. was the painting. Oh, yeah. First off, it was the painting, the still image. The, the painting scary. of Vigo. And then the voice... Yeah, I think I, I Vigo like genuinely scared me uh, in, yeah, in 1989. He, but what did he really do? <laughs> he covered a museum with mood slime. That yeah. was about it. Yeah, he just he like <laughs> that was it. he just kind of no. he he made he made for an inconvenient day for a lot of people. That was kind of it. Oh my god, you're right. I think I think Venkman really summed it up very well. Hey, Vigo. Yeah, you the bimbo with the baby. And anybody tell you the big shoulder look is out? You know, I have met some dumb blinds in my life but you take the taco pal 
You can't deny that Mr. Venkman was right. And when Vigo was done in by a horrifically drunken New York City version of Auld Lang Syne, <laughs> I feel like Vigo and the writers of Ghostbusters 2 really did take the taco. <laughs> well, my number three is an evil god. And mm. I think he's on my list kind of because it's like some edgelord bullshit. <laughs> I'm going with... <laughs> Leviathan, the god of hell from Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. That's an awesome choice. Pinhead's boss. How are you the god of the assholes, I guess? I, I'm not a big fan of the Hellraiser franchise. No. The first I'm not Hellraiser is a movie. The yeah. second Hellraiser has seen the first Hellraiser before. <laughs> right. And then all of the other movies are absolutely worthy of film jitsu. And I am sure we will yeah. cross one of those Hellraiser sequels at some point. But yep. Leviathan, the god of hell. Really, dude? Man. I don't know. Like, he's probably working a desk job now. <laughs> he still has... He's he covering has, his tattoos up with, with yeah. long sleeve shirt. I don't know. I got no use for the guy. So that's why he made it on my list at number I three. It. I love how he's cast as just straight up useless now. Oh, yeah, like, just, <laughs> like, just but, but if you think about it, office work, that is going to be what hell is at the end of yep. the day. Yeah, you're probably <laughs> right. It's going to be, you're going to wake up and be back in that job that you had. Oh, my God. And there's Leviathan sitting at the front of he's the like office the, the Bill looking Lumber for the TPS reports. Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, my number three goes in a completely different direction, and that is 1981's Class of the Titans. We knew mm. that a Greek god was going to show up yep. on this, but which one? Which one? It's Poseidon. So on film, I cannot think of a worse portrayal of a god than in this sword and sandals epic. It's true that the Greek gods were a reflection of the psychology of we humans and that they were subject to the same failures and foibles as we are, but they were still supposed to be mighty and powerful and threatening. And among them, Poseidon was the god of arguably the most powerful force on the planet. Uh -huh. The sea, yeah, right? And yet, in Clash of the Titans, all you see of the great god Poseidon, who, by the way, was also god of earthquake storms and horses. I don't <laughs> There's know There's always that one, right? There's <laughs> why? always why? The, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But anyway, all you get to see of him in this movie, more or less, is lifting a giant gate to release the kraken. Uh -huh. That's it. Wow. So essentially, this cool, vengeful, vindictive, greedy, and ultra-formidable god was reduced to the same level as the dude that kept the Rancor monster in yeah. Jabba the Hutt's palace. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of the gods get short shrift in Clash of the Titans. I mean, they all play second fiddle to Ham Harry Hamlin, mm -hmm. which is pretty insulting. But poor Poseidon, you know, he gets to do almost nothing but look dumb. I feel bad for veteran actor Jack Willem. I mean, here you got this Shakespearean actor who starred in many a production on stage and on screen to just uh, gape <laughs> as this thing goes and just to pretend that he's God of the sea like he's floating underwater. <laughs> it's, it's the kind of thing that makes you go home and eat the macaroni and cheese right out of the pot. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Why can humanity not get the god of the sea in any form? Like, Aquaman is clearly the dumbest oh, superhero. God. and So bad. Being in charge of the seas should be like the most right? badass thing there is. The right. only time we've ever even come close to getting it right is Ursula and the Little Mermaid. Like, I'll take Ursula yeah, over Aquaman any day of the week. Any day. Yeah, I, you know what? <laughs> oh. what, I'm, what? What I'm more interested in is like that weird tacked on god job that you're talking about. Like, like why do you get to be the god of tornadoes and fire?
fire and harmonicas. Like, <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff left over at the end. Like you're playing some weird episode of God Chopped where you're like, okay, you've made a stew. Now you got to put a belt buckle in it. You're like, what the fuck? Why am I in charge of belt buckles? It's ridiculous. Oh, God. That would have made a more fun list, honestly. We should have just come. Bottom five God jobs. That would have been that one. <laughs> That's such a good pick. <laughs> oh, man. My number two pick is going to be a little tricky because I don't know if I actually understand what is happening in this movie. I don't know if I'm about to explain it right. I do like it. <laughs> For me, it's the engineers in Prometheus. Oh, cool. What a great choice. What a great choice. Thank you. Yeah, so we, I love that. This is a very complex, complicated, like as many times as I've watched the movie, I'm still not 100% sure I can tell you that I know exactly what the narrative is. But I think what happened is humanity travels across the universe in search of their genetic progenitors only to yeah. find out. That they're just kind of assholes who don't care and didn't really even mean to make people in the first place. There is no grand god at the other side of your great barrier. Right. They're just some dudes who didn't really even know you exist and kind of don't give a shit. Well, sort of. They were actually they were actually going to clean shit up and they were going to get rid of us yeah, using right. the and, xenomorph. Right. And yeah. so <laughs> and, and it all gets very complicated. The engineers, as they are, these kind of great big space assholes who would prefer us dead than alive. <laughs> That's a bad Sounds god. Sounds like god. That's a bad god. Yeah. That's a yeah. bad god. Yeah, that checks That out. is such a monumentally awesome choice. Great logic at work there. That is exactly what they were looking for in the movie. They were looking for god and they found it and it was the most disappointing possible thing other than a Sean Connery looking light show. <laughs> well, my number 2. This is a pretty obvious choice. It's actually a terrible movie. Hmm. Uh, it's from 2014. It's called The Pyramid and it's the god Anubis, which is Egyptian god. The Pyramid couldn't decide if it was a found footage movie, if it was a mockumentary, or if it was just a very shakily shot horror flick. It was produced by new French extremity auteur Alexander Aja and was directed by his frequent writing collaborator, Gregory Lavasseur, who was screenwriter on P2, Mirrors, and the remakes of The Hills Have Eyes and Maniac. So this isn't a particularly great pedigree, but what's really shameful about the pyramid is its awful treatment of the god Anubis. So Anubis is the Egyptian god of death and keeper of the gates to the underworld. Also, he watches over fine linens. You no, see, I knew kidding. it. Yeah, there we <laughs> no, go. no, no, he doesn't. The god of coffee cups. <laughs> he's most often represented as a man with a canine head. And he's pretty much the one-stop shop for all the afterlife business. So embalming, mummification, guidance of souls to the underworld, tombs, cemeteries, etc. Right? So in the pyramid, the central revelation is that this archaeological dig at the center of the plot uncovers a buried pyramid that houses the tomb of Anubis. Uh-oh. And I'm not blowing any plot stuff there because there's zero in the way of mystery or suspense yeah. for anyone that has even the most passing knowledge of like any mummy movie ever uh -huh. like you know you're not supposed to go into the tomb <laughs> We've you know, all, we like, all know don't open the thing right so you basically end up with the usual like a bunch of annoying archaeologists slash adventurers who get it picked off at first by booby traps and then by the god of death himself so this is 
essentially a slasher movie with a dog-headed god as the villain. <laughs> but as bad as he's poorly rendered by the screenplay, and it's terrible, he actually gets killed by mutant cats in the story. Yeah, anyway. so You could have given me a hundred years to try and tell you how Anubis bites it in that movie. And right. I would never and come it's up like, with yeah. mutant cats. Mutant dark dwelling cats that, that guard the underworld attack him. I, I don't know. But I can tell you that as bad as he's rendered in the screenplay, he's worse rendered by the CGI that's used to bring him alive. This is horrible looking. It looks like early 90s terrible CGI and it feels insulting to treat any god this poorly the pyramid 2014 I didn't even know it existed and it is not <laughs> it's not usual that a horror release makes it by me completely oh, unawares <laughs> by a yeah, guy like Alexander Aja who's got a reputation yeah he's got a I, reputation yeah. I didn't even know he this didn't was direct it he produced it but yeah it's 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 he just why was he even involved yeah well <laughs> my number one yeah, is from a, a fairly recent release, a movie that might qualify as one of my biggest cinematic letdowns. Oh. I am going with Maxwell Lord, played by Pedro Pascal in Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, he was a god. Yeah, I he, can see where you're coming from. That with was that. the whole yeah. thing, is he was he mm -hmm. became a god. And but essentially he was the wishmaster. Yeah, And I think I'd just rather watch The Wishmaster, but <laughs> Wonder Woman was a film that I really, like a lot of people, the original Wonder Woman, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was it was fun. I was into Gal Gadot as the character. I A lot about it worked for me. I was excited for the next one. I was all jazzed that this 1984, and I was sitting there watching it, and I was looking around, and I could tell nobody else was enjoying this movie. And I, yeah, it was one of yeah. them. It was the kind of movie where you sit there, and you're like, uh, wait, uh-oh. Do I hate this movie I was super excited for? I came into this movie really primed to like it, and I really did not. And a lot of that has to do with Maxwell Lord, a character that I thought was a bit of a dumb idea to start with, certainly mm -hmm. played by Pedro Pascal, who I think is a good actor. Yeah. Way too over the top. Like, I couldn't figure out what he was going for. Was it supposed he couldn't, to be he couldn't, campy? Was he could not fit. Nothing he did not pick work? a tone. Yeah, I, I feel like it is it is a shame because he is a good actor. And I think that there were pieces of his role in that movie that resonated as like a father not wanting to disappoint his child and everything. But then like that stuff for me actually worked in a movie that I see. I don't like Gail Gadot uh -huh. as Wonder Woman. I don't think she's particularly good at all. I think Chris Pine in the first movie. Yeah really helps out a lot and even in the second movie helps out quite a bit and i like pedro pascal and i like the character but i i didn't i couldn't connect because i didn't understand what was happening with him just none so. of it none of it worked for me he was kind of like this manic 80s over the top villain but yeah. he's ending the world yeah. because he's well, he got was donald trump he was kind of donald trump meets gordon gecko but yeah every once in a while we're supposed to remember that he keeps forgetting that, that he's, he's got a kid right and then he's right. i don't know like i just i hated the movie so much yeah it's a bad it was movie. such a 180 for me from the first one and that almost sure. exclusively had to do with maxwell lord the god of i don't know wishing for stuff <laughs> it's hard to say. It's an interesting choice. He's a he's the villain of a of a superhero movie, and I think it. I'm surprised that this is the first time we've really talked about how they sort of overlap superheroes and gods, which is like DC's whole thing. 
Well, my last one is the first one that jumped into my head when we talked about doing this. And it is from a 1989 movie called Begotten. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's a very, very fringe sort of art house movie. The god is actually just called God Killing Himself. Is it oh. in, in the first moments of the movie, what is Begotten, right? It's the directorial debut of filmmaker E. Elias Marriage. He is the guy that made Shadow with a Vampire mm, later on. Yeah. So, which is a great flick. Really great good. flick. But this, is it an art film? Is it an experimental film? Is it a horror film? Mm. Is it a no-budget shock gore fest? Is it a meditation on existence or an endurance test? And I think it's all of that, but... <laughs> But it's got this like really vile and indelible imagery of a god disemboweling himself. It's like this cloaked figure in a white robe with a straight edge razor that's driving the razor into himself and cutting out his entrails and they're spilling all over. And this goes on for maybe five, probably about five to seven minutes, just spilling and bleeding and shaking. And I think possibly some of the imagery, it's black and white. It's shot very grainy, so the it's it almost looks like Super 8, honestly, that's wow. been blown up to 16 millimeters or something like that. It is very reminiscent to me of the imagery that was used for, like, the videotape sequences in The Ring. Okay. And The Ring, of course, came quite a ways later. So I think it's entirely possible that some of the folks that... I'm talking about Ringu, the, the Japanese yeah. film. But I mean, the, the idea of just a god killing himself, I guess thematically it's supposed to be he's giving, a, a woman comes up out of the entrails and it's supposed to be like the birth of Mother Earth. And then later she somehow gets semen from him and, and he becomes pregnant and has the son of Earth. And it's just a very weird, chaotic, gross thing. The but, god of Earth and humanity and semen. Okay, I got you. Yes, yeah. right. There you go. <laughs> I, I really don't know what to make of the whole the whole film, which is why I thought maybe it was what was on your list when you said, I don't really know what to make of it. I never knew what to make of this. There are some readings of this that it talks about the birth of Mother Earth and the human race out of the chaos of destruction and whatever else. But when I think of like a god killing itself, even if it's to give birth to Mother Earth, you know, it's a rather chaotic bit of grandiose self-destruction. And I find that interestingly parallel to the death of Christ, who is also considered God and the Holy Spirit himself, and who gives birth, I guess, to forgiveness. That's some big thoughts for our little podcast. <laughs> so I'm just going to say that Begotten is a sloppy but visually compelling student film that was cobbled together by some New York art school types. And it gained attention from um, the writer, filmmaker, activist Susan Sontag, who called it, no lie, a metaphysical splatter film and one of the 10 most important films of modern times. Whoa. So she liked to champion some questionable shit when it came to film criticism. I think this is a prime example. And where she sees symbolism, I see just like laziness and grotesquerie. And you can see it on YouTube if you have the interest of watching it. It's a rough haul. It sounds rough. <laughs> Boy, from Mortal Kombat 95 to God tearing out his own entrails on YouTube, we really covered a lot of territory <laughs> in this bottom five, didn't we? We really did. Well, Jay, we made it through our bottom five gods. Here we are, just mere mortals, back on the other side, all of that behind us. Now is a chance for us to talk about a couple of good films. It's our staff picks. 
I want to hear what you have for our listeners this week. Well, you know, during the pandemic, Christopher Nolan released a movie called Tenet that hit theaters probably at about the worst time imaginable. They were trying to force people back into cinemas. Nolan was sort of a pariah as a result of that move. I, for one, have seen Tenet a few times. I've watched it again this past week. And I have to say, I really wish I did see it in the cinema. I wish it could get re-released. It is a big, loud, insane visual feast. Does it make sense? I'm not sure. (laughs) As far as what Tenet really is, it's Nolan does Bond. He does big, noisy concept movies. Sure. That's totally his bread and butter. But no matter how nonsensical it gets, and this one really does get nonsensical, it manages to get a lot out of its cast. And I mean, you've got John David Washington, who makes an awesome African-American James Bond type. He's confident and vulnerable. You've got Robert Pattinson, who is super charming and roguish, making me wish that he could tackle Bond and make it funny. And then just Kenneth Branagh, man, he's a mean Russian arms dealer. He's just something to behold. He's icy and simmering at the same time. The plot, completely insane. It deals with weaponry that operates in quote-unquote inverted time and the end-of-the-world dangers that it poses And what the movie does so well is it has a big, big, ridiculously complex storyline, but it boils everything down to very simple situations and then just gives you this visual splendor of things going backward. (laughs) You know, like, wow, watch as these people are moving forward, but an explosion goes backward right next to them. You know, it's just really, really neat visuals. Nolan's a really fun and interesting filmmaker. I think that Tenet is definitely worth a watch. And again, if enough people ask for it, maybe it'll get re-released on the big screen. Because I think something like this would be a real hoot to see. It's certainly a time capsule of a movie, because you're right. It was the big, yeah. we're going to try to get pole. people out of the... Yep out of their houses and back into theaters and it did not work no nobody went so it's a real shame because it is a quality flick and just to see kenneth Branagh as a russian arms dealer man (laughs) is he's something else my staff pick this week is very different than yours (laughs) Uh, as I've said before on the show, I'm a real fan of films from the new Hollywood era. Those 60s, early 70s films where Hollywood started doing something new with heroes and antiheroes. We hadn't quite seen depictions of violence in film the way we were seeing it in the new Hollywood era. And so this week, I'm going to suggest that our listeners check out 1967's Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Directed by Arthur Penn, the same guy who did The Miracle Worker, and really even just these two films is enough to make a career as far as I'm (laughs) concerned. It stars Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, an absolutely show-stopping Faye Dunaway, as Bonnie and Clyde, those legendary American outlaws tearing their way through the countryside, robbing banks and shooting things up. I've never really been attracted to the Bonnie and Clyde story. I feel like it's something that we all kind of know, like, oh, Bonnie and Clyde, I get it. And and mm-hmm. so I didn't watch the movie for a very long time because it just didn't seem like something that would interest me. I felt like I knew the whole story. And what Arthur Penn gives us is a movie where it doesn't matter that you know the whole story because it really is about these 
characters. Americans have always had a preoccupation with the anti-hero, specifically in American life. We like the free-spirited criminal making his own way and, and bucking the system and somehow seeming to be the good guy at the end. These are the bad guys that are doing bad things and we're supposed right. to kind of enjoy it. The thing that's cool about Bonnie and Clyde as part of that kind of new Hollywood movement is that we get that, but I think we're tricked by this film into thinking we're watching a lighthearted farce. Yeah, because of the, yeah, the tone. Yeah. Warren Beatty is a stand-in for the impotence of this lifestyle. He is literally mm -hmm. impotent in the movie. The myth of the American gangster is that we're stuck holding the bag for celebrating this lifestyle. What mm -hmm. Arthur Penn's movie remind us is that, hey, you've really enjoyed going along this madcap adventure with Bonnie and Clyde. Well, you need to be reminded that they're the bad guys and that they've been doing bad things and that they're going to be held to account by it in an extremely violent way. Mm -hmm. Cinema just wasn't really talking about that kind of stuff prior to this. So all of that kind of serves to give us a movie that wants us to think that it's this lighthearted, wild-on-the-run comedy, only to turn it around and rub it in your faces that this movie is actually about what you think think it's about yeah it's up to more than just bonnie and clyde being charming anti-heroes and for the first time i think arthur penn in a major way confronts that the bad guys are the bad guys even if you kind of like them. Yep. the violent and dangerous lifestyle leads to a violent and dangerous ending and and you're kind of left sitting there holding the bag i'm glad that our movies are so wildly far apart in things <laughs> i think it gives our listeners a lot to choose from if you've <laughs> listened to either of our picks and you enjoy them please drop us a line at j at filmjitsu.net or mike at filmjitsu.net and tell us why you liked it or why we're idiots because let's face it i'm certainly an idiot well i gotta say that that last swing that i took at you was probably the meanest swing that i've taken yet i think we can agree with that um i i finally came at you with a true film jitsu pick you did well mike i gotta say like i i thought that it was going to be a lot more of a struggle to find something to talk about other than <laughs> you rap bastard santo i felt an incredible responsibility to <laughs> rise to the occasion because i know how near and dear star trek is to you and the only thing that would have been unfair would have been for me to be dismissive of it out of hand so <laughs> i felt like i was defending your thesis <laughs> but i i mean I, we all have to pay our dues and now it's now it's my time. Apparently. Now it's your time. This was a bit of serendipity because there's a movie on my mind for a little while and I wasn't quite sure when to pull the trigger or how to get it in there as being the right time to make you watch this. And then you gave me Star Trek. <laughs> and what have I been talking about? All the time as we've had the Star Trek discussion, my introduction to Star Trek is the last 10 minutes of Next Generation before Knight Rider comes on. Well, Jay, they made a Knight Rider movie. Oh, come on. They made a Knight Rider 2000. After Knight Rider had come and gone, they decided what? to take Hasselhoff back to the well. And so, yeah, in fact, there was a Knight Rider 2000. Our first entry into a made-for-television film. Oh, my God. I wasn't sure when I was going to give this to you. And then, on a golden platter, yeah. how else could I follow Star Trek 
but with Knight Rider. It's what I've been doing my whole life, baby. And so for our next episode, you're going to sit down with the Hoff. You're going to check in a past its expiration date Knight Rider <laughs> film. You're going to watch Knight Rider 2000. Jesus. A reboot of a show that was fairly terrible in concept to begin with. I'm sorry, Mike. I know you were eight years old and loved it, but man. Oh, you're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's fast food. It's terrible for oh. me, and I'm still going to devour all of it. 1986 came, some years went by, and nobody said, you know what I could use? <laughs> I could use a little bit more Knight Rider. How about a movie? What's a Hasselhoff doing these days? Nothing cool. Give me that. And so you are going to sit down and watch 1991's Knight Rider 2000, starring the original cast of the Knight Rider television show. There's going to be a couple of faces in there that I think you're going to be psyched to see. Some of your favorites uh, that, that have supporting roles in the movie. Directed by a guy named Alan J. Levi. Do you know what else Alan J. Levi has done? Yeah, I have no idea. Neither does anybody else, Jason. Enjoy no. <laughs> your film. We're going to do our bottom five cars. Of course. It's simple. It's easy. We're not going to overthink this one. No Sam Raimi the classic. I'm saying it now. Leave the classic out of it. All right. Sounds good. I'm up to the challenge. Let's do it. But until next time, I was just your host, Jay, and he was your host, Mike. <laughs> and we'll get the hell out of here. See you later. You bastard. Night Rider. No one's going to no. want to listen to this goddamn show. <laughs> we, it's not too late to change the title of our podcast and nobody's going to listen to this goddamn show. <laughs>